Uh, good morning. Welcome to the Milk Road Podcast. Today, we're so happy to have Dr. Anna Barlow with us. Anna is a passionate foodie, corporate R&D, and innovation leader, startup coach, and scientist who has over 20 years experience working internationally with firms that include Mondelez, Kraft, and Acai Beverages. Anna is the food innovation partner at Startup Bootcamp Australia where she leads the food talent and growth team. She's also an advisor and a mentor to several startups and larger businesses through a private consulting and investment business and holds non-exec director roles in the board, boards of Australian Vinegar, Queensland, and Fermentaz, Tasmania. We're, Chris DeBono and I are so happy to have Anna on the Milk Road podcast today. Thanks for coming on, Anna. How are you? Happy New um, Year. Thank you, Adam. It's great to see you as well. And um, I'm uh, doing really well. I've just had a couple of weeks holiday, both in New Zealand and then um, out on the Mornington Peninsula. So I've had a really good couple of weeks. Oh, that's beautiful. Where did you get to in uh, in your home country of New Zealand? So I went back to Christchurch, which is where I was born. Uh, my mother had her 70th birthday. So we had a, a week of parties, I think is the best way to describe that. Um, so yeah, it was great fun. Oh, fun. And uh, Chris, how are you? Good? Yeah, really well. Thanks, Adam. Good, good, good. So uh, Chris and I are really happy to get a chance to 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 have you on the podcast and learn from you today. And um, I think one of the questions that Chris and I are keen to hear is, uh, you know, uh, is to help grow the startup uh, economy in Tasmania. I mean, that's, I think, one of the big reasons why we're both on the board of Startup Tasmania. And you're doing an incredible amount of work in the startup economy uh, in in Australia and specifically Tasmania. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, your work so far and what your some of your goals are and what why you do it? Sure. So the I guess the the reason that I'm in this is I've spent quite a long career in corporate, and really one of the things I found being part of corporate innovation is it can be a bit of a, a monthly drain on your energy because you have to work inside the corporate structure. And about five, six years ago, I started mentoring startups um, through Startup Bootcamp. I went on the accelerator program internally with the company I worked on at the time and really fell in love with the way in which startups work. Um, that led me to Startup Bootcamp as a mentor and now as the partner. And we work quite closely with the Tasmanian government to help bolster the Tasmanian startup ecosystem through our food tech accelerator that we're running out of Launceston. So we've just finished our first year of that last year and we're about to start scouting for our program for 2023. And um, the goal really is to help um, bolster the Tasmanian startup ecosystem by bringing in international startups to work locally um, across the state with companies and other startups and create that collaboration network that you need if you're really going to get onto the international startup stage. So you look around the world and you see um, countries like Israel, you see countries like the US, they've got this plethora of local and international startups in these little ecosystem pockets, which create so much innovation and value um, for where they come from. And that's what we're trying to do on a smaller scale um, in Tassie. Hmm. Uh, is there any surprising thing that you learned uh, that you did not expect during that process? Uh, I've Forgive me if that, that question comes out of the blue. I mean, because I think what you're talking about, and um, I spoke the other week with Tom Lewis mm -hmm. um, about this idea of clustering. Yep. Right. So, and, uh, you know, one of the reasons that that people create 
clusters between industries working together is because then there's like unrealized value that comes out there. Mm-hmm. Um, was the, is there anything that jumps out in your mind that uh, might actually be kind of a, a spark for what a new trend might be that we haven't seen yet in Tasmania? I think there's two or, things really. Or, or that Australia. Yeah, yeah, I think, that, I mean, starting with Tassie, I think the benefit you've got is that it is a smaller state and most people know each other. And if they don't, they know someone who knows someone. And I think that um, I wasn't surprised about it because I'm a New Zealander and I don't think it's that different. Um, but what I was surprised about is how powerful that is when you're dealing with a startup ecosystem. So we have our head office for Australia is based in Melbourne. It's a lot bigger and there's a lot more players. But down in Tasmania, there's a lot more collaboration that's possible, not yet happening to the extent I think it can. Um, But I think the surprise for me was really once you start getting in there, how many doors open for you and how welcoming welcoming people are. And once you start opening conversations up with them and you start connecting dots on what could we do together, there's a lot of possibilities. The other thing that surprised me is how big the impact of the pandemic has been on the ability to collaborate. So yes, we've got all these wonderful ways to collaborate over Zoom, but getting people to actually physically come to the state, whether they're coming from overseas or even if they're coming from the mainland and sit down and spend time is a battle. Then what you wanna do is make sure that everybody who's working in the state is also in the room. And so we've all got used to doing things remotely, but creating people in a space is quite challenging. You know, you, you go to any office building that's got co-working spaces and they're still quite empty compared to what they were three or four years ago. So there's a bit of work to do, I think, to recreate that um, energy of people all in one space working together. And I found that quite challenging. A, convincing all of the companies that coming to Tasmania was going to be a benefit. Those that did really reaped the benefits from it and it's continuing to. Can you give us an example of one? Yeah, so the, probably the best one would be Transport Genie. So they're a company that came over from Canada and they came for the whole three months of the program. They got stuck into the city. They they helped out at the Junction Arts Festival. They've literally eaten their way around um, Launceston and they know every cafe. Um, very, very popular one that they went to with bread and butter. Um, but they spent the entire time they were there networking in the state, getting to know people. They found a, a local manufacturing partner. They've employed their first Tasmanian employee and they're setting up their business in Australia out of Tasmania. So that company has really taken the opportunity with both arms um, and really made a massive impact. And, and they're what, do they, a, what do they do? They, they're a transportation welfare company. So effectively what they do is they use technology to um, put sensors inside trucks or crates or anything that transports live animals from everything from a day old um, chick from a poultry system all the way through to where the animals are um, converted into meat for for human consumption. Um, And those animals get transported all over the state. Some of them get transported across to the mainland and others get transported internationally. And what consumers are really interested in at the moment is understanding the welfare of what they're eating, has it been treated well? And Transport Genie is able to show companies that animals are being treated really well from the minute they're hatched all the way through to the moment that they're killed. And to do so using the power of technology. Oh yeah, so I can, it sounds like Tasmania being a kind of a a smaller place than Canada might be a great place to test that business model. Is that what you're saying? Is that what you found out? 
it, definitely. And I think what they found out is they were wanting to come here already with a proven system that works in poultry and starting to prove in, in swine. What they hadn't realised is the power of using this for aquaculture. Um, well, I think we found out how many trucks of salmon, whether that be from the smallest, tiniest um, uh, fish all the way through to the really large ones, that actually get transported around the state. It's, it's hundreds of truck movements of fish, of live fish. And all of those things need to be monitored for their health to make sure they're not getting sick, um, that they're not getting too much CO2 or too little, or they need more oxygen, that the temperature's not wrong. And those sorts of things can be monitored and adjusted um, in real time with this sort of technology. Oh, really? That one was a really great example of, you know, Tasmania is one of the, um, the biggest exporters of livestock um, within the country. And it really does need the ability to move stock from Tasmania to the mainland, particularly breeding stock. Um, and to be able to do that safely is a really powerful thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, obviously the food system, the food chain, right? Mm. Yeah, so changing the quality of the food chain in Tasmania sounds like that's maybe a way to describe the trend that they're on. Absolutely, yeah. Safety yeah. and welfare, I think. Mm -hmm. I think people, if, if you're starting to see people moving towards more plant-based or making different choices, those that do want to consume animal products, if they know that those animals have been treated humanely mm -hmm. and not just humanely, but well um, and cared for, there's a lot more of a positive ethical story that you can tell yourself. Right. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a yeah. huge part of future food consumption is the, the ethical consumption. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, and I think if we just look at the simple maths behind it, we, you know, we can't, not every uh, animal or crop can be organic. It just mm -hmm. can't quite work. The maths doesn't add up to feed 10 billion people by 2050. Um, but it, they, they can be ethical. Um, yeah, so I think that's a, yeah, really powerful. I had no idea that uh, there was so much live fish transport it was in the hundreds of truck movements a year. Yeah, that's fascinating to learn. Yeah. And that's the sort of thing that you get when you come and you talk to people in a state that are so welcoming. And we had such a great reception um, from human agriculture when we went and visited them. Mm. Sorry, what was the name of the company? You said human agriculture? Human agriculture. Oh, human. Human, yeah. yeah. Right. So um, predictions for uh, 2023 in terms of, because I think what I see as an investor, and I know you are too, and uh, and I view, and and I and Chris is an investor in his own business and, and others as well. I mean, what um, what do you, and you're at the very early coal stage phase of these things and importing, helping companies move to Tasmania that already have business models with some revenue or proof of concept. Any predictions for what, uh, we're going to see unfold in 2023 or maybe beginning here now? Yeah, so I think there's a couple of things. We did late last year another scan of the fermentation space. Um, so every, the way our scouting process works is we sit down with our partners and we understand what things they have pain points around. So if you take something like fermentation, um, you know, you've got everything from wanting to be able to scale it in a sustainable way. And so we've seen all this explosion of fermentation companies, but what we haven't seen yet, and I think we will see, are the technologies that are going to help do that successfully. So how do you know if you're scaling something from five litres up to 
25,000 litres, that you're getting the air, the, you know, the oxygen in there if you're doing an aerobic fermentation or you're getting the movement of the, the bacteria or, or the gases if you're doing a gas fermentation. How do you know that that scaling is going to work? So there's a lot of engineering capability, there's a lot of technology and sensors and things that needs to be invented to make sure that those sorts of things are working, or also innovation, taking things from other industries and then putting them into the food system and showing that they will demonstrate the same kind of thing. So if you're looking at scaling processes, you know, the oil and gas industry have been doing it for, for you know, donkey's years. What can we learn from those industries and replay them into um, industries that are creating food for the future in this new way? to help make it more possible to scale. Because a lot of these companies you're seeing that increased, you know, that received a large amount of CC funding in you know, 2022 or earlier, um, that funding is gonna dry up a little bit. We're seeing that with the, the money markets, there's not as much cash around, but the scaling is still gonna be required. So it's a different type of, of, I think, change that you're gonna see. You'll see people starting to look at the problems of, okay, how do we solve the scaling problem? Because that's the next hurdle that you're seeing. The other things that I think we're seeing is in this space of um, sustainability, where you know we've got these zero waste to landfill goals, we've got the food waste CRC has now been in um, in play for quite some time, and you've got some commercialisation of those opportunities, and you've also got startups that are working in that food waste space. So what can you do with the food waste we're creating through our processing systems um, in states like Tasmania, where you've got this plethora of dairy, you've got grapes, you've got um, your, your processing for your beers, you've got your cheeses, you've got all these products. And then you've got the agriculture and the horticulture of the apples and um, cherries and berries and corn and everything else that you grow in the state. All of those things create waste. How do you then convert that waste into value? And what are the startups that we're seeing there? And I think that's the, the thing that we're going to be scouting for because we're seeing that as a real need. Um, becoming more circular, having a zero waste state, you've got you know food and organic waste being collected in, in most of the cities now. But is composting the best way to deal with that? What else can you do that will create more value? And what are you saying? What have you what are you sensing? Have you seen anything yet? Because uh, I, I mean, in a weird way, is it wrong to say that this is still part of the fermentation economy because things are fermenting when they're composting? Or well, I think it, it is very much. And I think when you think people think about fermentation, they do think of things like sourdough and beer and wine and the traditional stuff. But if you broaden your eyes, you can see everything from creating new meats to creating nutraceuticals from fermented fruit waste. Oh, to, yeah. And we saw a startup from that from last year's program, but there is a huge amount of fruit waste that's still not going to be dealt with, um, even if they are successful beyond their wildest dreams. Um, and and I think there's the infrastructure that's going to be needed to be able to process all of these things will create so many jobs if we can get enough people to collaborate and make it happen. Mm -hmm. Chris, please go ahead. Yeah. Um, and I, I want to ask about, this sort of goes back to the start of the podcast where you're talking about sort of collaboration. Um, so I think for, you know, if we're talking about a, a business like you're discussing right now, that's, you know, maybe going to start solving the waste thing. It's a really new and innovative um, idea and it comes on your program. We would reasonably expect that business is going to receive, um, you know, potential of private support and we would expect the like the investment timeline for that business is going to be um you know private to to begin with and it's probably and not until it's a going concern that the government would have a role your 
startup boot camp essentially deleverages a lot of the risk for the government to be involved in these early startups. Do you find that um, the, the government recognises the role that you play, the significant risk deleveraging role that you're playing? Um, I definitely think they do, Chris, and I think that's one of the reasons why they wanted to do a program like this was that yeah. what it does is it brings companies into the stack. Fly Farm, for example, I think it flew into Launceston yesterday. They're um, manufacturing um, waste from, so they're taking the waste, sorry, from the manufacturing processes in places like Asahi or breweries, and they're using that spent grain waste, feeding it to their flies, rendering the flies from into oil and into, or the maggots, sorry, into oil and into um, protein. And then those are going to places like the fish food factories that you've got in the state. Mm. And then being becoming aquaculture feed. Now, in order for that company to scale, it needs a land mass that's big enough and away from domestic living to process the, um, the, the waste that comes in. The facilities themselves don't smell. I've been and visited their one, for example, they've got a test facility in Brisbane. But they're looking at building one um, in the state nearer Hobart so that they can produce waste um, products from the flies all the way through to make this fish and aquafeed. Um, and the government's really involved in talking to them about what sort of land's available, what kind of red tape can be removed. Because this is a fantastic circular story. If you're taking waste from food processing production, and you're converting it into aquafeed that's also used in the state, the, mm. num the number of um, kind of carbon credits that you can generate from something like that, let alone the fact that you've got a circular story. Um, yeah, and then transport, Jeannie's making sure that the fish are transported well. Precisely. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm really impressed with the, the, the way in which the companies that have come into the state have seen opportunities. I think where we've got to make a big improvement next year is getting more people involved up front so they can start connecting the dots themselves as well. Because it's, it's very easy for me to go and knock on a door. It's also very easy for that door to remain closed. But the more people that get, listen and think, oh, yeah, that could, how could that work for me? Um, yeah, right. yeah. That's, that's really what this takes for it to be successful is for the companies that have got the problems to acknowledge those problems. For startups who've already fallen passionately in love with those problems and found a solution to them, and those two things were to, to connect. Yeah, that that makes then a lot of sense. You yeah, like getting, getting people earlier, really getting yeah. people earlier in the process to to think about the problem, so that they can figure out how they can turn that into an opportunity for themselves. Is that exactly? Yeah. That? All right. So you're an expert um, who's worked in big company culture, like Mondelez. Uh, and um and craft right like mm -hmm. yeah. those are those are global firms and you understand how to work in a global firm and then obviously the small company culture which is totally different the startup culture mm. yeah um and what i kind of hear is chris asking a really great question which is how do you negotiate and live in those two different worlds knowing you know that you've got this startup person that has one culture and then you've got like a political person who's making financial decisions and they've got a different culture or way of thinking about things. Yeah. And those two cultures are pretty different, right? Mm -hmm. So um, as you, if you could snap your thing, like, and everybody wants to get to the promised land in the story, like whatever the perfect place is, right? Um, and that's obviously always changing too, right? Mm -hmm. You know? So if you could snap your fingers and, saw, and solve one problem that 
you think is holding back um and i'd like to ask about tasmania but i appreciate that you're um that you don't live here now and and it's and you're not always here but if you could snap your fingers and and look at it as an outsider uh at tasmania and be like hey look um uh i'm an outsider this is how i see the way things are and this is what needs to be solved if you could snap your fingers and solve one problem that would make all of Tasmanians work together more efficiently to get to the promised land. How would you describe that problem? I think the problem is a self-limiting belief. So mm. some, sometimes um, there's a gap between there being a problem and a company acknowledging that that problem is real and could be solved by something a bit outside the box. And that takes a leap of faith. So whether you're a corporate partner that might be wanting to work with a startup, there's, a nut, there's got to be people inside that corporate or that company that are prepared to make that leap of faith that it's worth doing a proof of value or a proof of concept or some little test to check whether that startup can create value. That will take time and effort and energy. But it doesn't cost a lot. It takes that, the biggest cost is the leap of faith and the, and the perspective that the person who's making that leap of faith or the group of people that are making that leap of faith are putting some risk on the line. Because startup work is always going to be risky. It's, that's why a lot of people go into that space because they love the challenge, they love the risk. I do. Passionately in love with the problem yeah. and they want to yeah, solve it too. and they want to make the world a better place. And these people sometimes are really quite big dreamers and they don't speak the same language as the people who, who are died in the wall corporate people. There's a reason why I don't work in corporate anymore. Mm. And, you know, I was, I found that environment really restrictive and very frustrating and, and energy draining. Mm -hmm. And so I think if you're a person that's very comfortable in the structured environment, it's really challenging to take that leap of faith into the space which feels really unstructured. Now, what we try to do, what I try to do is Look, to bring that, that that's gap. So, that, that's so true. Like, that is so true. And don't, um, forgive me for interrupting, but I just want to say that, that the way that you've identified that is just beautiful. That, um, that self-limiting belief. I'm like, Anna, like, I think you nailed it, right? Yeah. And, um, and then what you, where I cut you off was you're saying like that gap but I want to inject here, Chris, because I think that gap, the easiest way to start covering that gap is with story. Like, you know, like, and, you know, I can bounce 10 stories off of Chris and be like, here's one, here's one, which one do you believe, which one is worth testing? And now we've got GPT chat that's telling us stories about stuff. Like, how are you, how are you closing the gap now? And, and, where I cut you off, Anna, forgive me. How, yeah, so, how, how do so you we close, close the gap? With story. It's interesting you say that. So there's a lot of things that we do. So our programs last about 12 weeks and yeah. we cover three things. Pitch readiness, which is your story. Yeah. Can you tell your story to everybody from an elevator all the way through to somebody who might be an investor and everything in between from your Nana to your 10 year old. And can you tell your story in a compelling and engaging and understandable way with no jargon? Even an investor who's familiar with your field is probably not going to know your internal jargon. Commercial readiness is really tied in that. Can you tell your story in a commercially viable way? Do you have a proof to show your costs and your inputs and 
how they change as you grow, what evidence do you have? And so you're starting to talk a little bit with facts in your story in that commercial readiness piece. Yeah. You've understood what your business model is and you can tell the story of how you bring money in and how you're spending money that you're going to get from an investor or from a corporate partner. And then finally, there's your investment readiness. There's, once you've got your story in all the different formats for everybody and you have a way to show how your money comes in and out and how you generate value for your customers, then your investment readiness really takes care of itself because then it's about making sure that you can pass due diligence, that you've got all your ducks in a row, that you've got your paperwork, that your company makes sense, you've got the right people, or you've got a plan to get the right people. Because often we're dealing with people that might be single founders or two or three found, two or three co-founders. So they're really early stage. But mm -hmm. to get that first tranche of investment, they need to be able to tell their story in a compelling way that makes commercial sense and have their ducks in a row from an investment perspective. And those three areas are what we work on to help bridge the gap. The commercial readiness part is the bit that makes the most sense from a storytelling standpoint or corporate, because that's what they look at first and foremost. You know, I do a lot of consulting back into the companies that I've worked with or, or their peer group, and you hear them and they always talk about feasibility, viability, desirability, whereas we flip that and say desirability, who's going to want it? Can you feasibly make it and then you look at the financial viability? Because when you're starting small, you're not going to be financially viable. You have to get your scale and, and those things then reduce your costs as you start to scale. But big companies always think about things in a $5 million revenue bucket. You know, how many buckets of $5 million revenue are I going to get from this new innovation or this NPD? A startup comes in and they say, I'm going to make 50000 in the first six months. And the, the numbers don't make any sense. And so they would instantly go, well, this is too small and they lose interest. So the yeah, storytelling I mean, shows yeah. them how to go from five fifty thousand to five million or five hundred million. It's different. It's, what I'm hearing is different needs. Like yeah. if I go to a, a manager at Kraft or Mondelez and say I can make you a million dollars next year, like I'm like, sorry, I, 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 <laughs> you're you're causing yeah, a the random. I don't yeah. need that, right? Um, but what you so you mentioned pitch readiness, mm -hmm. commercial, commercial readiness. Re Commercial readiness, investor readiness, readiness yeah. Yep. And um, to me, it sounds to me like um, those first three words you said, self-limiting belief system, right? Mm -hmm. So this is, I think, about changing that for oneself and then small group of people that are part of that founding team, mm -hmm. right? Yep. And so the ability to tell the story about why that, is necessary uh, and why people should go on that journey mm. is kind of the first step. Do you, my sense is that, um, uh, that that skill is, um, is missing in my own business for years. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you, how do you rate the skill level of, um, of pure startups in Tasmania when it comes to that skill? They, one of the things that I've been doing is mainly working with international startups that we bring to Tasmania. Um, but equally, though, when we're looking at startups um, and working with the ones that enterprise have, you know, enterprise use a very similar model to us. We've, um, we share a lot of our, um, our, I guess, knowledge in how to do things. One of our staff oh, spent six months as an entrepreneur in residence with enterprise well before the pandemic um, to help get the infrastructure right for the Born Global program that they run really successfully today where they're you know, accelerating local um, startups. 
Yeah. And what, what Casey and Amy and the team are doing at Enterprise is very similar to what we do. They're really looking at um, founders initially and going, okay, if they've got the right kind of growth mindset, because if you're going to bring in a founder to any kind of accelerator program, the first thing they have to be is coachable. So they need to have the ability to demonstrate that if you coach them, their mind will grow and they will go from A to B and they can see a pathway through. So what I look for things like their learning agility. Can they apply something from what they've learned in the past to a new situation? Have they got a how might we mentality rather than a why we can't mentality? Mm. And and that's where, um, you know, you take that sort of, passionate founder that really has fallen in love with their problem so passionately not their solution but their problem that they're solving mm. and those are those are two very different things but subtly different in the sense that they'll talk about their solution but if they talk about their solution in terms of the problem they're solving then you know they've nailed the that there's a problem to solve does that, does that make sense yeah i've heard somebody say the person best uh, able to solve the problem is the one who's best able to define it. That's like yeah. a lockhead thing. And, right? and you do see some, not every founder, certainly not the big new tech ones, but, and we talked a little bit about these chat things before and the ones that are writing blogs for us. Mm. Those were solved by people initially that had that problem themselves and there's got to be a better way of doing this. I look at it as an older person and think, um, you know, I've, I've, hand, I've handwritten my, my, um, my school exams and apparently that's what they're going back to now so they can avoid these things I was talking to a friend of mine who's a teacher the other day and she was telling me that mm. um, but yeah so for founders we want this growth mindset we want them to be coachable because there's no point in somebody coming on an accelerator program if they're not going to listen and learn because what we do is we surround them with this plethora of mentors from across the industry local industry players global industry players, investors, and people who have experience in the field. And those people have joined us as mentors for their own personal development, so they can start thinking more broadly. Certainly, that was what drove me to become a mentor initially, was get me out of the corporate drudge yeah. into this mindset of thinking differently. And I learned as much as the startups I was helping, probably more. And it energized me back to go back to my day job. And a lot of the corporate partners that we have that, that send their staff to become mentors. A lot of the reasons they sign up and stay and then keep coming back is that re-energizing they get from being in this environment. And and I think, you know, coming back to your point about the corporates and the different language, the journey that some of the partners can go on, particularly the Tasmanian businesses that might want to explore this but don't really know how, the thing I'd say to them is first just start mentoring. Come along to some events, listen to the pitch for beers on a Friday. Come along and listen to the startups as they test their ideas out with you as a, as a safe audience. Give them mm -hmm. feedback. Learn as they learn. And that's a great way for people to, to experience this and then perhaps um, get a bit more involved once they've understood a bit more about it. Yeah, that makes sense. Chris, I want to give you a chance to talk, but I want to just mention briefly there. I totally agree. That makes sense. And, I, and you mentioned language, like the different language. Mm -hmm. uh, and I believe that that language comes because those people have different culture. It, it can do. Um, well, but I mean, like people say that that culture eats strategy for lunch. Yeah. Right. Like culture is the way that we do things when nobody's looking. Yes. So I think what I see you as connecting cultures that that are like two magnets sometimes. They're like, no, I don't want to go. Oh, each other. <laughs> yeah. Wow. yeah. 
So we, we, what we do is we also, um, you know, through the programs, we train both sides of that magnet and help them learn to t- turn around so they attract one another. Um, exactly. Like, I mean, that's, yeah. I think that conflict. But you that, can't just train the startups. You have to also train the corporate partner. And so with a program like that. I think it's got to be the harder part because yeah. the corporate partner is going like, look, I'm getting paid a million dollars a year. Why do I need to learn from that person? Mm. No? <laughs> Well, they, they think again when they turn into unicorns. <laughs> so, I mean, you're not going to have every. I don't honestly do I, look. I told. I, I agree that that may be the case on the mainland and in Silicon Valley in the United States, but I don't believe that that's necessarily the case in Tasmania, which is why I think the startup ecosystem here is underdeveloped. Yeah, does that sound wrong? Probably, but there's probably less people paid a million dollars in Tasmania too. So there's, yeah, <laughs> I think it's. Yeah, but I mean, our whole, e- there's there's fewer, I mean, name me one unicorn here. Well, yeah, you've got a lot of unicorns that have made Tasmania their home by buying land and coming and visiting and staying. But yeah, yeah there, there haven't been yet. And I, I think it's underdeveloped, but it's also in an early stage of its life. If you look at the, the program that Enterprise has been running in Startup Tasmania, you also don't have a, a very large connected investor network yet either. And yeah, you know that's something that you know, Trevor and I um, and Jackie, who's our investment manager, are starting to try and create conversations around through running angels boot camps because it starts first with having angels, people who understand how they can add value as an angel investor with a small investment. And, you know, you don't have to have um, a huge million dollar salary to to be that. You know, the sophisticated investor um, uh, levels in Australia are actually not that um, challenging to achieve. There are uh, hundreds of business people, uh, men and women across the state that would meet that criteria that have got a huge amount that they could be giving to the ecosystem through their expertise and, and small amounts of angel investment. And you know, one of the things that- So um, why isn't that happening? Well, I think it, it, there's two parts, but one is that there's an awareness gap. So helping people understand that this is something they can do. Um, and then there's a bit of an education as well as to, you know, what does it mean if I want to be an angel investor? What do I have to learn? And the Angels Bootcamp, Trevor, ran last year. We're going to run another one um, in Hobart. This year we ran one in Launceston. Yeah, how did that go? I was away. I wanted to go to that. That looked really fast. It was great. We actually had, yeah. we had some people that flew over from the mainland for it. There was two people that turned up, one from Sydney, one from Queensland. We had... Yeah. Um, people drove from Hobart to Launceston, which I know is quite challenging in the state um, to do, but we had several people that did that. And the startups got huge value out of it because day two, they get to pitch to those angel investors and the angels get to pretend that they're actually investing in them. And we we demonstrate what a, a negotiation's like. We run a, a live simulation. You know, One of our founders who had recently closed around um, was against uh, one of our angel investors um, who's actually investing already in our program. And the two of them went head to head, um, guided by a lawyer who was helping them work through a term sheet and showing them all the things that you might see in a term sheet, what to look out for, what are the sticky clauses that you know might annoy you as a startup and might, you know, that you're really going to care about as an investor. And he he helped them do both sides. And and our founder Charlotte, she gave her perspective of what it had been like for her when she went through her her round raising. She raised um, officially, I think, three and a half um, million euros in the order of that. Oh, right. uh, so her first round recently, and 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 our investor Tom, he had he's invested in a number of businesses, um, and, and is involved in a number of startups himself, and so he was able to give the perspective of the investor and what he looks for. 
And that was hugely valuable for the startups that watched it, but also for the angel investors who may be coming along and learning about angel investments for the first time. Yeah, that must have been pretty educational. Yeah, I did that course a couple of years ago during COVID. Um, and I sat outside for two whole days because we did the whole thing on Zoom in the sunshine under my umbrella because it was a, and we were in lockdown at the time. And I just found that so refreshing just to think differently for a couple of days. And, and I learned so much. And so, you know, if you if you see those things advertised over the next um, year, I'd, we'd love you all to come and we'll just run as, run them as much as we need to until we, we start to create the capability, you know, this group of people in the state. Yeah, that, that makes, I'm looking forward to that. I'm hopeful. So I think what you mentioned earlier, like if uh, an investor puts something in, right, mm. then uh, where the ecosystem grows is when they get return. Because then other investors are like, oh, wow that return is, I'd like that return as well. Yeah? Well, yes and no. I think angel investors invest for um, different reasons. So many of the investors- I'm not just talking money. We're not only talking cash. Oh, you're talking return, yeah, yeah. You know, overall return. I agree, like you mentioned earlier. And I don't want to be confusing, but but, so you do get the um, uh, non-financial return, right? Yes. Right. It can't yeah. just be like a one way, like I got the cash and now um, I'll call you if and when anything happens. Mm. Yeah. One of our um, one of our investors this year is a, you know, a retired executive from a very senior roles within Kraft and, and other companies globally. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I reached out to him during our scouting process and said, I'd noticed on LinkedIn that he was connected to quite a few of the startups I was looking at. I was looking at quite a few in the cannabis space, particularly given um, Tasmania's um, medicinal yeah. um, medicinal product background. I thought there's got to be some new technologies that can really add value. Yeah, we found old, it yeah. very challenging to get into that space locally. Right. Um, and But the innovation that I've seen... Um, in in that space is just amazing and so I, I reached out to him and said you know what do you know about these startups but at that mm-hmm. point he said I'd really love to be involved I love mentoring and in mm-hmm. fact he brought one of our other pro- companies onto the program who he'd been mentoring personally um, by you know putting her forward she then ended up making it through to the final selection um, on her own merits and you know what I think all of our semi-retired or retired um, investors get is that you know they're, they're so if, if their lives were different, they probably would want to keep working. This enables them to keep using all the skills that they've created over their 30, 40 year careers and give back. And a lot of that's what it's about is mm-hmm. a giving back because you've ha- they've had very successful careers themselves. They've still got a lot of value they can add to the world, but they can add it in a very different way through investing and through, through mentoring. Hmm. What do you think the, Chris, I want you to ask a question, but I, I want to ask this one first. What do you think the, the, the first, uh, unicorn in Tasmania will be. I know that we have successful companies in Hobart, like in the gaming area, and we're not just talking about food. Uh, mm-hmm. There's the one that does the stuff for Apple. There are successful um, companies here. But in terms of what you're seeing, um, if you were going to make a bet right now, where do you think that the return comes from? Because when people get the financial return, then they can start playing bigger poker. Like I'm at the five dollar table now. I made I made X. Now I can move to the fifty and the hundred dollar table. And if nobody's returning capital from bets being made here, then the table's not getting any larger. So 
what do you forecast? What what would you what do you think the 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 first big return will be? Like the Canva, right? Because you kind of need that. Are you asking Chris or me? I I'd like to hear from Chris. I think you guys are seeing a much broader subset of the the, the local ecosystem um, than than perhaps I have. So I'd love to know what you think, Chris. Yeah, so I think there's there's two companies that I am keeping a really close eye on locally. I think, uh, and I think you know these guys, Adam, the Bitwise Agronomy um, yes, team. Yeah, Fiona Turner with their um, AI yield forecasting um, program, uh, you know, they're just going from strength to strength. And I know they've just closed a raise and they're in another one um, mm. now and getting some serious dollars behind it. I think um, that, yeah, they're, they're just nailing the, the need on the head and they've got a good um, solution. So really excited to watch them. And there's another group of guys down in Hobart um, doing the or importing secondhand electric vehicles, uh, which I think has got huge potential. I know that uh, I've sort of scouted online for, you know, secondhand Tesla um, on and off over the past few years, and there's just none available. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think that's that's got huge uh, legs as well, and they've just attracted um, investment from, I think it was Blackbird, uh, and I know that Cameron Adams has just put in uh, with them as well. So that's a, a you know, a big story uh, developing in Hobart. So I'm keeping an eye on. Yeah, those make sense. I And I know that uh, Fiona Kerslake is one of your advisors, I think. Fiona from Bitwise? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So she's been to a couple of our events and um, yes. And we also have um, Tom Woolley, who's, who's one of our investors. Oh, right. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, they were. Yeah, I'd agree with you on on Bitwise definitely. Yeah, uh, the Woolies uh, were original investors in one of the first big companies in the food space in Tasmania, obviously Bellamy's. Yeah, mm. yeah. And uh, were you familiar, Anna, already with the electric vehicle uh, thing? No, but it's interesting you say that because I've um, I, I've often wondered why a state that is so energy green, so focused on green energy, and I think is entirely. Um, green energy doesn't have more electric cars it's one thing I noticed when I was at home in New Zealand this time just how many electric cars there were compared to the last time I went six months ago um, there's been some sort of subsidy I think and, and in fact many of the rental cars that have been replaced as a result of the country opening up you now they got rid of all the fleet the new fleet that have been acquired uh, many of them are electric it's true yeah Tasmania could um, you know could be an all-electric car state yeah. yeah, I think that, that that takes, you know, some some cunning plans around some of these and, and really thinking about how do you get there quickly. Norway did a very good job in that. Um, they had a very, very lucrative subsidy program um, a few years ago. My husband and I went for a long weekend in Oslo and we couldn't get over how many electric cars there were. But every single parking meter was also a place that you could plug in. So yeah. you were never yeah, concerned yeah. about running out of charge. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so the uh, renewable energy um, clean economy is acting like what Chris and I think about as like a rip, you know, in, uh, for a surfer, right? Like you don't want to be on the end of the wave. 
you want to be identifying the rip that's getting pulled out to create the new wave. So we, yeah, we've been talking about how these, how do I, how do we identify these rips that um, are, are happening? And it feels to me like, yeah, the, the, the clean energy rip is here and it's big. The fermentation economy rip is big with the work that you're doing and Kim and Hazel's holding an event that Chris is speaking at at the end of February. Go ahead. You were going to say something, Anna. I was just going to say one thing I'd, I'd, I'd like to point out about those two rips is I'm seeing if you play your cards right as a state, you can actually create those two intersecting. So if you take clean mm -hmm. energy and you create green hydrogen, and hydrogen is needed to create some of these um, biomass fermentations where they start off on our program, Nova Nutrients, that um, need CO2, you know, waste gases and hydrogen. And they feed that to bugs when those bugs make protein. That yeah. protein could be used as a really high quality aquaculture feeder. It potentially could be used as human food. And we're looking at different options for that with them. Now, Hazzy's got a huge ability to, to do both of those things. But it doesn't have to do it as an export hydrogen hub. It can do it where it just uses that hydrogen on land to create value locally as a first start whilst all the infrastructure is built to become an export hub for hydrogen. And and I do think there's there's a lot of focus on the state and the export. And if there was a lot less on that to start with, and all that just plotted along by itself because it's got a lot of things that need to happen, the food side could be made much more possible with hydrogen generated through renewables in other parts of the state, particularly in the South. Mm. And yeah. then you've got yeah. the I hear, I, I, hear you, I hear you talking about why export raw energy when it could be value added with another one. Yeah. So yeah. you can take your waste CO2, combine it with the clean hydrogen that you've produced and feed it to bugs and make protein out of it. And that yeah. protein can be fed to fish. And then you've got a fully circular system for your aquaculture feed. Or it could be even converted into human food. So protein shakes, those sorts of things. Yeah. Chris, you heard Anna talk about the rip there. And I and I think you wouldn't disagree that um, yeah, what she said, which is these these rips are moving together and then they can combine to form a larger rip. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, like we've talked about, you know, plenty of times, Adam, it's you know, our our job, your job as an investor, my job as an entrepreneur is to, you know, spot these rips. You know, your job as a surfer is to, you know, spot the wave um, that's forming and get on the get on the right like way run. out there. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, you've got yeah. to spot it uh, and and know that that's that's your wave that you're getting on. Um, you know, and I guess and that's the that, that's the risk part, and that's where you know Anna's mm. program helping to deleverage some of that risk is, you know, hugely valuable. I think, so I just want to jump in. I think this is more of an observation. It might turn into a question. So when I got up to Tasmania in 2016, I feel like um, there was, you know, before then, I know, I feel like Tasmania and Tasmanians um, were self-limiting in their beliefs. And I know like one of the biggest, you know, questions that I got early on uh, about my own business was, you know, oh, you know, are you exporting to the mainland? And it's like we'd been a, you know, a national business from, you know, very early on. But it just, yeah. you know, talking to other business people here in Tasmania, they were so focused on on state. And it was very 
um, insular in their in their viewpoint. And I feel that the time that I've been here, that has really opened up. Mm. I think programs like Startup Bootcamp um, and Born Global um, mm -hmm. are helping that. Um, people I, like think, I think Seed Lab's helping that too. I think what yes. you know, we're getting the funding from um, from Woolies, for example, and making it much more an Australian thing rather than a Tasmanian thing. It obviously does both. I think that's really opened people's eyes up. You don't, you can be a craft producer and be in Woolies. Um, yeah. And and Woolies want those producers in there. They don't want them in every store. They want them in the specialist stores where they know the product's going to move. And understanding how you can do that, I think, is is what um, you know Hazel's program is really offering for the for the more food producers or the niche craft producers. Um, and then helping them figure out what they need to do to scale is going to be the next thing if they really want to go bigger. Yeah, yeah. So it feels like to me the uh, this whole idea of a startup ecosystem has been uh, sort of bubbling away. I'd say fermenting for for the last <laughs> few years, and it's really starting to um, to to come together. We're getting the right players uh, in the ecosystem, and I know that um, the startup TAS committee, our um, you know constant headache at the moment, is trying to work out who to connect to who and how you know, as that, um, I guess, non, um, well, just that, that neutral party, you know, where, where do we fit in the ecosystem? Um, but, you know, the fact that we've got to worry about who to connect to who is is a good problem to have because it means that the, the players are there. There's still a couple of gaps, but uh, it feels like a really uh, exciting time to... To be a startup or consider being a startup in Tasmania. I totally agree. And I think if we can crack that nut of getting more people to Tasmania that we're bringing in, and if we can make sure that the startups that are working in places like Enterprise and those um, co working spaces are physically there and we mix them all together, that's when you start to see collaboration happening. And mm. you may start to see some merging of companies. And you know, through the journey that I've gone on the last couple of years, you know, I've been listening and learning to a lot of different people who've been working in this space for a lot, lot longer than I have. And you know, what the ones that have been around for a long time tell me is that when you do get those companies working in these close quarters together and they start sharing ideas and they start collaborating over the cups of coffee or the beers or whatever it is that, that happens in these spaces, that's when you start to see magic happening. And then when one succeeds, they all succeed because they share in it. And that creates more, more value because then there's belief. If somebody succeeds and everyone's happy about it, then they believe they can be too, and it starts to create that snowball effect. And Israel is a great example of that. The people that I've spoken with over the years that have worked in Israel with the startup ecosystem there, that you see it in Silicon Valley, it's been there for years. But that's... Yeah. The energy that success creates creates more success. Yeah, yeah. Um, what are your thoughts, Adam? Because I think you got to Tasmania about the same time that I did. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, everything that makes a lot of sense. I think what Anna said earlier about uh, if you could snap your fingers and solve a problem that would that would create jump change toward the promised land. I, I mean. She identified my problem, which is, um, you know, self-limiting belief, like, mm. do it, is it worth it? Should I try it? And I, I'm, I remember, uh, I think I remember correctly, correct me if I'm wrong, you talked about maybe bringing startups from Tasmania to Singapore. Mm. 
and some of the challenges to, to make that journey happen, which is what Chris and I fondly joke about, because I think every, every rip has got to feel funny sometimes. And we call yeah. the rip behind me, the new milk road rip yeah. there, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm um, actually dealing with this exactly at the moment. So tomorrow I've got a call with a partner Perfect. in Singapore. <laughs> Um, we have an office in Singapore. We're expanding that office in Singapore. Um, and yeah. so our Asia Pacific team, which will start up Bootcamp Australia, is now really more broader into the into the region. So what I'd like to do for the first week of our program is bring startups to, to Singapore for the first week. And then yeah. those that are able to be in Tasmania for the rest of the program, the remaining 11 weeks, would move back to Tasmania. If we can also convince some partners from as well as potentially some startups to come over for that first week where we really immerse people together and create that cohort effect. The mm. power that that will generate by everyone having that shared experience in a small enclosed space, and hopefully not too small if we do good negotiations with our Singapore partners, um, you know, we'll have a really great week which will create a lot of energy for the next 11 weeks and then what can come from that. So we, we saw that actually happen with our sports program last year. Um, one of the things that the pandemic has done, it's really changed how accelerators are run globally. There's very few now that are fully face-to-face. -face. Most of them have some form of hybrid delivery. And as a result of that, the startup's expectations around what a face-to-face -face program looks like have also changed. And so with sports, we had very few companies that were prepared to come to Melbourne, and which is one of the sporting capitals of the world. But they were happy to meet in Singapore for a week and then come to Melbourne for the last couple of weeks of the program. And, and that um, meant that by getting everybody in one place to start with, we created a cohort effect from people meeting face-to-face, -face, having that personal connection, going out and sharing a meal together, the things that create um, you know, personal connections. So that once we then went back to this hybrid situation, the cohort already was starting to collaborate. If we can do that for all of our programs, um, then that gives us much more energy. Now, ideally, you get everybody into Tasmania for the whole 12 weeks, but the world has changed. Wait a minute, wait, it's wait, 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 wait. I agree with all that, but I want to raise my finger on that one yeah. that's pulling in the back of my head. If I'm Tasmanian, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and I don't leave Tasmania, and all I ever do is invite people here, then how do I ever understand the culture out there? Well, like, that's, I think, the difference are, between what we do that, and what some of the others do, because we are an international wait, wait, Doesn't that make me data poor? Like, oh, totally. I'm just teaching somebody about my whole country, my whole culture, my whole system. I'm, yeah. I'm inviting you into my home, and I'm going to teach you everything that's happening here. But if I don't go to your place, yeah. then how do I understand even how it works? Aren't I, that, aren't I creating, yeah. like, aren't I creating as, an asymmetrical information disadvantage for myself you are but i think it comes down to who's owning that part so the part that i own is the internationals <laughs> coming to tasmania the part yeah. that casey and the enterprise team own and startup tasmania owns is helping the tasmanian startups become global which is why born global exists so perhaps okay. what we're talking about here is formulating an idea where casey and i need to have a conversation around yeah, yeah, yeah. do something together and think <laughs> <more>. <laughs> how do you how do you collaborate on the new milk road? Like, yeah. how do you get people? Because that's my understanding. Well, that'll need funding, right? So I think if anyone's listening to this, then and, um, if, if there's a benefit for Tasmanian businesses to sponsor some startups to go to, to Singapore with them, and we have a group of people all going together, it's a bit like it's a mini trade mission. That's the sort of thing we'd be needing. Yeah, I mean, that's a startup. That is an idea of a startup. Like, how do we tell the story? 
yeah. which is uh, how you get it funded. Because if you don't have a business model that pays for it, then how's it going to work? Yeah, I right? think traditionally those sorts of things are funded by government. And question is, should it be? Yes, a yeah. trade mission, I think they did a trade mission, unfortunately, in 2022 to Singapore, which we missed the boat on. And I think this year's one's Japan. Yeah, um, yeah it's confusing. Yeah. And, and those things can't just be every three years. You know, companies need to keep going back. Those relationships don't get built once every three years. Yeah. Now, if you're going to invest and you're looking at a market like Singapore or, or Asia Pacific, where Singapore might be your hub, you need to be going back and forth because Asian countries, particularly that part of the world, are very relationship-focused and very trust-based. And you need to have time together to build those relationships. And, and it's a lot harder to do that. Yeah, agreed. Bear with me one second while I get higher on my soapbox. <laughs> um, the um, like, if you're, I think that by not understanding what what's happening up the road where you sell your product to consumers, like whether it's Chris in Hobart to Melbourne, uh, Sydney, Brisbane, or Perth or NT, right? If you're not going out there on the road and you're on not understanding what your customers are consuming, right? And you're just saying, I'm going to wait here until you come and buy from me, right? Then how long will it be before you don't know what your customers actually want and you get pushed into the wholesale commodity side of the market and you don't even understand how to tell a story that adds price value? Like, yeah. how do you expect that to, to not play out that way? But I don't think that's a small company problem. It's a big company problem. I, I mean, totally agree. I'm just, I'm yeah. saying it's the whole, yeah. it's so the whole there's thing. There's loads right? of things yeah. you can do differently. So that one, this is an innovation space in its own right. So mm -hmm. for the last seven or eight years, I've worked with a company called Watch Me Think. And what they do is they recruit thinkers who go in, and in coffee, we did this in China because it's very hard to do consumer research the way Western people do. And so they recruited a whole lot of people who drank coffee or hot drinks in China. And we planted a coffee machine into their homes and we got them to video how they use it. We found them using it for making noodles, for doing baby bottles, for yeah. brewing green tea. And actually they weren't using it as a coffee machine. It was a coffee machine and a kettle and a noodle maker and it was a breast milk thing, sterilizer. It was all those yes. things. And you see that through a video. And Watch Me Think do that beautifully. And if you've got a budget, you can pay somebody like Watch Me Think, and it's not that expensive, actually. Um, they're really good value for money for what you get. Yeah. And you've also got companies like Street Beat who pay students to go out there and they train them to go and do consumer interviews on the street. And they're all local, so they're speaking the same language. So if you want to go and do research in Thailand, yeah. Street Beat have got Thai bees who go out there with their computers or their, normally their phones, and they interview tourists or locals who are doing stuff and they record them and they ask them behavioral questions so tell me about the last time you made a cup of noodle soup exactly tell me about the where, last and where, that's you're, where you're hitting where you're hitting right now is problem solving exactly and you're so not you in the customer's spend, house knowing what the problems are then what are you doing yeah Sorry. and you don't have to get on a plane every three months to do that research yourself there are ways you can do it um, you know, we use a we have a lot of interns, and it's one of the things I love about Startup Bootcamp is we have this revolving door of interns that come from all over the world. And uh, you know, the, the guys that we've just got in this week that started yesterday are probably going to find out that the questions I'll be asking them about what they do and how they do it. Now these are eighteen year olds. 
I, well, it's a long time since I was 18, but the people we work with are selling stuff to 18-year-olds. And so we need to know how they think, what they do, what they, where they go, how they behave, and be curious about it. And whether you're a startup or a corporate, the single biggest thing that kills innovation is people sitting in an office believing they know what a consumer wants and not going out the door and actually having a conversation with them. And it doesn't have to be paying some agency $300,000 to do it for them. You know, I think... Corporate innovation particularly can benefit from getting off their bums and going and talking to consumers. Startups do that naturally because they haven't got any budget. <laughs> <laughs> and I think you know, where I like to play is in that intersection between the two where you're giving the corporates the tools that the startups just know inherently and the corporates have forgotten because they're all sitting on their lovely salaries and forget that actually it's possible. Mm. It's quite yeah. terrifying if you haven't done it for a while just to go and talk to a real person that's nothing like you. Well, I was going to say, it, yeah, it doesn't <laughs> happen in the corporate world because it feels like hard work. It's yeah. like, and it is, it's, you know, it's, um, and it's yeah. going to challenge. Yeah, well, we ran some training a few years ago with one of the companies, so I won't say which one, um, that I worked with. And we actually took, in, in both in New Zealand and Australia, and I asked our senior marketing people to go out and interview people in their local pub, buy people a drink and talk to them about why they were drinking what they were drinking. Mm. And, general manager level marketers couldn't do it they were terrified it felt mm. so awkward for them now that in itself being able to admit that is so vulnerable and mm. so important for them to say take a good look and say actually that i found that hard um but once you acknowledge it then you have to get over yourself and build a bridge and go and give it a go and when you do the the, the knowledge you gain you know we learned a huge amount about what tradies do on a friday night when they're doing going into a bottle store just from watching how they yeah. behave and talking to them. Yeah, that's really valuable. I think what I, the, the main thing that I take away from that might sound kind of geeky or technical, <laughs> but I look at it just as like information as asymmetry. Like yeah. if, if I'm, if I'm only inviting you into my space so you can learn about my problems and I'm not going to yours, then you have a major advantage commercially in terms of mm. solving your and my problem. I'll never even know what yours is. That's, I think, the main risk of what happens when people are not supporting you taking Tasmanian startups outside that way. Is yeah. that something? You've really given me something to think about on that. I think I'm going to have to give Casey a ring. That was about how we might make that work. And then I'll come back to you and say, how do we run a fundraiser? We might do a GoFundMe or something. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I agree with what, what Chris said earlier. Like it's got, and you too, I think we all believe it's got to be coming from the private sector, right? Mm. But but because there's more value getting created beyond the private sector, then the government's a stakeholder. And then that relationship gets really confusing. So being able to move people across the line to fund that, I think, is not easy. So, you know, full kudos well, for yeah. the work. And it comes down to the jobs that you're creating, right? Like, I think if you just look at the cohort from last year, um, you know, yeah, there's been the job created. That's the, that's the, there's been, let's just say there's one job created. One job in Tasmania might be worth $200,000 for an you know, average paying right. job by the time you, you look at how much their spending power is. The investment yeah. that we're getting from the government in our program is 200000 a year, there or thereabouts, without giving yeah. too much commercial information away. And yeah. so you only need one job to be created from a program of 10 
for it to pay off. You get more than that and you're already in the positive. Right, one-to-one -one pays back. And then, then you're talking like what we want as an investors, which is I don't want to put a dollar in to get a dollar back. I no. want to put one in to get 10. Exactly. Right? And yeah. so that's where you have 10 startups and you give them you know, the opportunities to them. And, and all these things are all possible. The timelines for some of them will be shorter than others, but that's the nature of the game. Hmm. Chris, you've created some jobs in Tasmania now. Yeah, we have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Two or three or more? Uh, I mean, we've got one, one, two, three. 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 Besides, no, no, that, that excludes myself. you? That excludes yeah, you? Yeah, including, yeah, excluding uh, myself and, and Megan, the other founder, yeah. Right, yeah. And what um, what do you see as, as a job creator in your space? Because we talked a little bit about... And I want to be sensitive to your time schedule, Anna. But I do want to I do want to try to touch on this uh, fermentation economy concept a little bit, which is alcohol versus non-alcohol. Chris, mm -hmm. do you mind if we delve in there? Right. So you're you're most you're in the non-alcohol space, right? Yep. And we're creating a lot of jobs in the alcohol fermentation space, like right. And the government's putting money, grant money, into those. Have you seen much grant money flow into the non-alcoholic fermentation space, which I think is probably better for your health, which doesn't impact the healthcare system in Tasmania so hard? Yeah, yeah, I think it's a, uh, probably a mixed bag. I think where, yeah, so look, the, the grant money is is available in the sort of, you know, the, the grants system that the Tasmanian government puts out and it's a, you know, it's a good system. Um, I think what we have seen is some of the more established um, businesses have the lobbying power to uh, to get additional funds that aren't part of the advertised grant programs. Why aren't we seeing more money flow into the non-alcoholic fermentation economy? Why do you think that doesn't happen? I suspect that there is a large tax payback from the alcohol production. Oh, right, the money. <laughs> yeah, that part. Yeah, um, yeah that's also why we're not banning the bonkies. <laughs> oh, God, um, yeah. If I'm a cynical, let's see where a fair bit of it comes from Thank because there's a, there's a tax payback. But You're not being, I don't think that's being yeah. cynical. I think that's being realistic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the reality is that all the drinking population at the younger drinking age are starting to drink less alcohol. Yeah. You know, I, I joined um, the large alcohol producer from the UK where I had seen non-alcoholic gins explode. Seedlip was purchased 25% originally by Diageo. And it was a massive theme that we'd been looking at in the coffee business that I was looking at. And I walked in the door and said, we've got to start looking at non-alcoholic. And I got laughed at. Really? Oh, that's oh, totally. so great that you said I, it. I got laughed at. And, wow. and, and in fact, we ran an innovation day where we showed people what you could do. We, we talked to them about the, the storytelling of, of, you know, how big this is going to be. Wow. I'm reliably informed that the people behind Liars, which has recently been valued at $500 million from Australia, which is a um, non-alcoholic spirits, if you can call it that company. Okay. Um, I think last year they were valued at $500 million. So, you know, unicorn status as far as food and beverage goes. Yeah, look, yeah. this entire podcast is all fiction. So everything. <laughs> <laughs> but 
but That's yeah, those, there are stories like that in corporate everywhere where you know you, companies will come to you with an idea um you know and I would have been as guilty as the next person where you know small businesses would come and see me in my previous roles and say this is my company this is what I want but the storytelling wasn't there the believability the commercial readiness wasn't there and so no. we weren't prepared to invest and you know I, I'd like to think that what we do now differently with Startup Bootcamp is that we help those conversations go better because we're both preparing the corporate to have those conversations by them being partners on the program and mm. we're preparing the startups to have the conversations in a way the corporate understands and speaks their language mm. that tells a story that's compelling that they can see will get to the size of the business that it needs to be for them to be interested in and then that they will place small bets and come on the journey coming back to the seedlip example Diageo investing 25% in them eventually ended up in them fully acquiring them, but they did that 25% investment to test and learn the market and understand where it was going wow. and help them prove it. And, you know, I think that's the sort of thing that corporates can do with startups. They don't have to take a, a um, in fact, they're probably better not to take a controlling stake in the early days because you need that innovation spirit break glass to to you know move mountains to, to perhaps play on the the gray edges which you know particularly for the really large corporates is quite a challenging thing to do because they're so because of the liability issues mm. but that being said there are ways you can still put you know guardrails or innovation sandboxes around things so that they can play safely within those gray areas which is what you're doing i think yeah it is exactly yeah. And, That's you know, not easy. We we appreciate that very much. Yeah. <laughs> but it's fun. It might not be easy, but it's fun. <laughs> well, hopefully we can play more on that journey too. And uh and because you know, we've got skin in the game and we're investors in this. And uh mm. yeah, I think it's all about growing a part of the economy here that's missing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the part of the economy that will really benefit from, you know, these companies, the local companies, uh, whether it be, you know, established family-run businesses, it, interacting with local startups or international startups, the cross-pollination of ideas that can occur from those companies working together mm -hmm. is where you start to uncover things that can really make a difference. Yeah, agreed, agreed. I think, Chris, uh, um and I do want to protect your time. I think we also want to give you the last word. And, and what I just heard there was just amazing. Like, uh, you know, I, like that was just so wonderful and valuable to hear. Chris, do you want to ask Anna anything else before we ask her to kind of um, tell people who who are listening um, what what they what they might want to do to add value in their lives that'll also create value for Anna? You know, in terms of this, do you have any last questions or do we turn it over to her so she can let us know? Yeah, look, I've got no other questions at this stage. I think it's been, for me, a really uh, informative discussion. So, you know, thanks very much for, um, you know, even though I'm on the ground here in Tasmania, I've still learned uh, new things about the, the ecosystem. So it's been a fantastic chat. So thank you very much. Yeah, you're welcome. Now it's been great. I think for anybody that would like to learn a bit more, um, you know, we do run quite regular events in Tasmania. We also run a lot of Zoom events. People can join so that, you know, price of entry is simply a little bit of your time. 
you can learn about how to get involved either as a mentor or as an investor and, and really look out for those of people that are listening that want to become angel investors or learn about angel investing. You know, we will be having um, some training programs for that, which are great fun. You know, they're not two days just learning stuff by Zoom. They're very interactive and you meet a lot of really interesting people. Um, we'll be running those throughout the year um, in Hobart and in Launceston. And our first events, I think, will start running sometime in February, March. Um, we'll, we'll be putting those, those up on our website. Um, and you can connect through through startupbootcamp.com.au to, to see those. Mm, that's great. Yeah, we'll, um, we'll make sure to put um, uh, those links into the, uh, into the show notes. Yep. And, uh, yeah, I think the... Um, uh, I learned a, a huge amount here, so I can't thank you enough, Anna, for taking time to share that uh, knowledge and wisdom with us and uh, and help grow it into something more valuable, too. You're welcome. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for your time, both of you. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Have a great day, and uh, we'll see you online later. Well, thank you, Anna, and thank you, Chris DeBono. Uh, once again, you've taught me so much. I've learned so much. Thank you for sharing it with me. And uh, and people here in Tasmania who are growing the startup economy and the food businesses that are part of that trend as well that are so important to making life so much more valuable, interesting, and meaningful. Thank you for listening and looking forward to hear what you think too.